When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, a bespoke blend of the finest, freshly squeezed stories from across the week. I'm Anne McElvoy, Chief Mixologist at Economist Radio, and coming up we have the psychologist Jordan Peterson offers an unusual remedy to sexual harassment in the workplace, sartorial subversion in North Korea. And is that you, God, or is it my smart speaker? But first, America, as Donald Trump would have it. Most American elites think Trump is hurting their country. But corporate America is more enamored than ever of the president's vision of tax cuts, deregulation and trade concessions. In our cover story, though, we argued that American executives shouldn't count their chickens. The earnings of listed firms rose by 22 percent compared with a year earlier. Investment was up by 19 percent. But as our briefing explains, the investment surge is unlike any before. It is skewed towards tech giants, not firms with factories. A little hindsight is helpful here. During the Obama years, corporate America was convinced it was under siege, when in fact, judged by the numbers, it was in a golden era, with average profits 31% above long-term levels. Now bosses think they have entered a nirvana, when the reality is that the country's system of commerce is lurching away from rules, openness and multilateral treaties towards arbitrariness, insularity and transient deals. And while the Trump administration tries to free up business at home, it's tying trade in new knots. When they tinker with tariffs, large numbers of firms have to scurry to respond because they have global supply chains. The steel duties proposed in March cover a mere 0.5% of American imports. But so far this month, 200-odd listed American firms have discussed the financial impact of tariffs on their calls with investors. A bill in Congress envisages vetting all foreign investment into America. The cost involved in monitoring all this activity could ultimately be vast. Add to that the one certainty of this presidency, Mr Trump's unpredictability. He has just asked the Postal Service to raise delivery prices for Amazon, his bet noir, and the world's second most valuable listed firm. He could easily strike out in anger at other Silicon Valley firms. He wants the fate of ZTE, a Chinese telecoms firm banned in America for sanctions violations, to turn on his personal whim. Inevitably, other countries are playing rougher too. America Inc. has counted its profits before its costs. Mr Trump expects wages to rise, but 85% of firms in the S&P 500 are forecast to expand margins by 2019, reflecting a control of costs. Either shareholders or workers and Mr Trump are going to be disappointed. You can read more about the new laws of the American business jungle in this week's briefing. And while you're at it, why not subscribe? 
Go to economist.com slash radio offer to get your first 12 issues for $12 or £12. Let the good times roll. Next time you watch a video of the American president making some extraordinary proclamation, make sure you're watching carefully. Is it really him? Take this example. Dear people of Belgium, this is a huge deal. We all know that climate change is fake, just like this video. OK, so maybe that one wasn't so hard to guess. It's a fake made by SPA, a left-wing Belgian political party. And it's an example of what are known as deep fakes, where a computer is taught to recognise a face, for example, and then synthesise it. This one wasn't all that good, but subtler examples do exist. So how can we tell when to trust the evidence of our eyes and ears? Science correspondents Tim Cross and Hal Hodson came to our Babbage podcast to voice their concerns. The most depressing take on this is that this idea of a sort of reality we all agree on or a world in which truth is reasonably easily available and you're protected from falsehoods, maybe that was just a historical blip. I think we should be a little harder on the gatekeepers, though, because saying the gatekeepers just provided truth de facto is probably probably rubbish. Probably it was warped in all kinds of ways. But even if you have a crap version of shared reality, at least it's a shared reality, whereas what we're moving into is no version of shared reality. Well, and I think this actually, to now bring it back to be a little bit more optimistic, the media didn't always do the job that they like to think they did. But the sky didn't fall in. I don't think it's it's hopeless, but I think it is going to maybe just debase the idea of the truth a little bit more. We'll survive, but it won't be great. For the latest in science and technology and how to survive it, do subscribe to Babbage wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're in there, give us a rating. It makes all the difference to what we do. Our latest guest on The Economist Asks, our weekly chat show, was the clinical psychologist Jordan Peterson. He's a best-selling author who aims to challenge what he sees as an oppressive liberal orthodoxy, including in the media. We spoke to him as part of our Open Future season, where we're debating the modern role of classical liberal values of free speech and individual rights. And in that context, I asked him what he thinks can be done for women's rights and to tackle sexual harassment in the workplace. That, that's a hard question. It, it isn't obvious to me exactly what men and women have to do in the workplace to make that kind of sexual predation much less likely with also subjecting themselves to restrictions on the sexual aspect of their existence that would be unbearable. It's very difficult. What what would be unbearable about that? How about everybody wears the same uniform to work? That's what the Maoists... Well, look, if you want to eliminate the differences between men and women sexually at the workplace, you have to constrain the sexual differences. I mean, men wear suits to work. Well, we don't have to eliminate the sexual differences for people to work together with respect. You have to eliminate them to some degree. And you can hear the end of that tussle by going to economist.com slash open future and do join the debate yourselves. We're sure that you'll have something to say. If dress codes are part of the answer, Mr Peterson could read our business section, where this week our correspondent reported from inside North Korea. The government there has been trying to eliminate differences in dress for decades. Walk down the streets of Pyongyang, North Korea's capital, and at first sight the passers-by look rather uniform. The women are in tidy skirt suits and medium-high heels. The men sport variations on the theme of the jacket and wide trousers preferred by Kim Jong-un, the country's leader. 
government-mandated lapel pins with portraits of one or both of Mr Kim's predecessors continue to be ubiquitous. But look closer and you'll see a wealth of subtle sartorial rebellion. Some bright-coloured lace stitched onto a jacket here, a daringly cut skirt in a sparkling satin material there. The city's own tailors are to thank for these customizations. An increasing number of Pyongyang's residents are comparatively flush financially, either because they belong to the political elite or are involved in semi-official private enterprise or both. They are keen to distinguish themselves from their peers. If you buy clothes in a shop, you just have the same as everyone else, says one woman, whose sister sketches the design she takes to the tailor. That's boring. I want to look different. And the fashion police seems to be turning a blind eye. Once they got a batch of cloth in from England, says one woman, her eyes glinting. Never mind that the label may well have been faked. The other side of the world seems suddenly closer. Over on the other side of the world, a piece in our America section marvelled at the ingenuity of the Incas. On the winter solstice in 2017, a team of researchers waited in the pre-dawn chill of the Atacama Desert. Before them stood two square piles of stones, each about 1.2 metres, that's four feet high. A row of three other cairns stretched out 500 metres to the east. The pillars had been thought to be just milestones. In fact, they're a southern hemisphere stonehenge. The sun rose directly behind the closest columns, appearing to rest briefly atop them. The pillars are a visible link to Inti, the sun god, who was thought to sit on Siwas at solstices. Their arrangement was a way of sacralising the political presence of the Inca, whose empire ruled northern and central Chile from about 1470 to 1530, says Cecilia Sanueza, a historian. It was an extremely moving experience. Meanwhile, a story in our Britain section addressed religion's attempts to get to grips with the modern world. The Church of England has found a new evangelical weapon, one it hopes can provide all the answers. Alexa, who is God? On May 24th, the Church of England launched an app for the Alexa platform that allows users to pose metaphysical queries to the speaker on their kitchen counter. The app can also find the nearest place of worship, explain how church weddings work and recite the Ten Commandments. It's part of a rather belated digital push. Before Mr Harris and his team of five were hired in 2016, the church's digital strategy was overseen part-time by one junior staffer with an annual budget of £10,000. That's $13,500. The latest review of its approach to the web had been a ponderous report in 1999 entitled Cybernauts Awake. Across the pond, some churches are rather more tech-savvy. Some American evangelical megachurches have experimented with online-only services. For over a decade, the Oklahoma-based Life.Church has streamed worship, preaching and prayer 24 hours a day through its website. Although where two or three are logged in doesn't quite have the same ring to it, does it? But then very little is sacred anymore. Our Johnson columnist was on the receiving end of fire and brimstone this week after tearing up the ban on split infinitives. Et tu, Brute?
I pen this missive heavy of heart and slumped in despair. Now that your venerable publication, the last bastion of grammatical fortitude, has abandoned its principal stand against splitting the infinitive, are any of the sacred rules of grammar safe? What next? Will we all soon be pondering the question of to be or to not be? That was H. Coleman Switke in Pennsylvania, but some readers welcomed the reform. Here's Jack Winkler from London. Congratulations to The Economist on slaughtering the old rule against split infinitives. Please relentlessly continue to radically cull prescriptive language rules. And with that, it's time to regretfully conclude this week's episode of Tasting Menu. I'm going to sweetly sign off. This is Anne McElvoy in London. You've been listening to The Economist. 